This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of five, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, a practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 279, first airing in early December of 2022. Sarah is going to be interviewing one of the authors of The No Club, which is a fascinating book about women letting go of non-promotable tasks. Uh, You talk a little bit about that, Sarah? Yeah, this was a fascinating interview for me because I definitely felt like this book was written for me and not just me, but people like me as an audience. You know, not that I feel like I've had massive injustices put upon me or something like that, but I've actually been really interested recently to read some data about how female physicians tend to get more patient messages more staff requests. And so I recognize that not only do we have more opportunities to potentially say yes or no, but as we've talked about in the interview, it can be a harsher kind of punishment if you do say no. So while that doesn't solve the problem, I do think learning about the reality of the world we live in is helpful so that we can see everything through a more understanding lens. And Lori Weingart was a fantastic person to talk to. She's a business school professor and just has a lot of insight. 
Yeah. So we're looking forward to sharing that with you in a few minutes. I, I think it's always good to be careful with our yeses and no to make those choices mindfully. And one of the things I've certainly found over the years is that when people are thinking about saying yes or no, we're often more likely to say yes to things that are far in the future. And that's partly because we don't see what the opportunity cost will be in the future. Whereas, you know, somebody asks you to do something tomorrow, like, you know what you're doing tomorrow, you know what tomorrow looks like, you know what the conditions are. And so you can more accurately judge like, oh, is it, you know, do I have the energy to do this? Do I have the resources to do this? Is this something I want to do? Whereas future you feels like this total blank slate and, you know, April use calendar looks pretty open. And so you're like, hey, I could do this. So, you know, I was just tell people to think like, would you do this tomorrow? Like ask yourself, even if you're looking at April, May, June, and it's December now, would you do this tomorrow? Would you be willing to move things around or cancel things tomorrow to fit this in? Because it's highly probable that life won't be perfect when your commitment to do this thing comes due. So you might consider that like, well, in the abstract, it sounds fine to travel to this special meeting somewhere else. But what if it turns out that you are patching together backup childcare on that week? Or what if it turns out that one of your kids has this huge thing at school that you're going to want to be part of? Like, are, are you still excited about doing this thing? And if you aren't, you'd be like, why am I doing this? Well, you know, then maybe that's a sign that you don't want to take this on now. Yes. Future you versus past you may not always agree. And you really want to try to get yourself as close to the mindset of future you as you can when you're making these decisions. But I can't wait to hear what she has to say about saying no to non-promotable tasks. So let's go ahead and go to the interview. All right. Well, I am so excited to welcome Lori Weingart, who is one of the authors of The No Club, which we're going to talk about a whole bunch in the next segment here. And she is a professor at the business school at Carnegie Mellon University. So hello, Lori. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, and thanks so much for having me. Awesome. I think you should start from the beginning because I loved reading the story about how The No Club came to be. Can you share that story? Because I have to admit, it sounded very familiar and close to home to me. Yeah, about 12 years ago or so, one of my friends, Linda, sent an email to me and a few of our other colleagues. We did not know each other, but she knew each of us. And she sent us an email saying that her work life was completely out of control. And she knew that we were all successful and assumed we were probably facing the same challenges. So she basically just sent us a doodle poll saying, let's get together. Here are some times. I know you won't say no. And she called us from there and then, the I Just Can't Say No Club. We started meeting regularly at this local restaurant, over $10 bottles of wine. This was their loss leader. And started talking about all the challenges that we were facing in work with situations where we wanted to say no, but we felt we couldn't. Or we felt some pressure to say yes, either from ourselves or from other people. And what we could do to solve the problem. you know. And then over the next... 10, 12 years, we got much better at saying no. But also what we realized is it wasn't solving the problem. We just kept getting asked and other women were getting asked what we turned down. And so we really decided to do something about it. And there was this story, I think, about her walking past the desk of her colleague as she was running from meeting to meeting and noticing that he never moved. That was like very 
eye-opening yeah. to me because I feel like I have had some days like that. And we're going to get in a little bit to how that can happen, but that was just so powerful. Yeah, right. And they actually compared their schedules to one another and looked at the blocks of time, even in a typical day. And Linda had all these meetings, committee meetings and mentoring she was doing outside of her regular job, which is teaching and research, where George had all this time to kind of sit and really do the deep thinking that was so important to the work of a professor. And and that's what really clued her in that something was going on. And she was like literally running circles around him <laughs> physically. Oh, yeah. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about non-promotable tasks, which is something that the No Club goes into depth about. So for those of us who aren't familiar with the concept, what are non-promotable tasks? Right. A non-promotable task is something that you do at work that really matters to the organization, but doesn't help your career. Very simple de- you know, definitions. So you think about all the things we do that aren't core parts of our jobs necessarily, but need to get done and somebody's got to do them. So when we talked to lots of different people about examples, you know, we found a whole host of things that people talked about. They talked about all the things they do, you know, and that we do as women to help other people. We might fill in when they're unavailable or they have to, you know, pick up their kids. We may review the report that they're writing to make sure that there aren't any errors or fix the slide deck or, you know, there's just all these extra things we do. It could be also things like serving on committees, like in my job, serve on so many committees. And everybody does some of these. But what we're finding is that these non-promotable tasks, when they get to be too much, could become problematic. Think about recruiting activities or onboarding. I don't know if you've done any of that, or even the things we do to help our coworkers, you know, out in a pinch or to resolve conflict or be the listening ear. And then, of course, you know, there's the office housework. Right. And this is the stuff that some people have written about where they, you know, talk about ordering lunch for meetings and taking notes or getting coffee, all that extra stuff that women are more likely to do than men. But these are all non promotable tasks. I totally see that. And I am so curious because having been on the receiving end of a lot of these requests, and I always feel like it's well meaning and it always almost comes off as complimentary, like, Sarah, we know that you're so nice and you have your stuff together. So do you have time to interview this candidate or whatever? And does it happen more to, well, I'm very interested, like, does it actually happen more to women? And then why? Is it just easier to ask the women? Are the women more likely to say yes? Is it that women are much like, like my hypothesis is that you can kind of get away with being like the curmudgeonly genius as a male much more easily than you can do that as a woman. But that's only gut feeling. Like I don't have anything to actually back that up. Yeah. So we we definitely wondered if it was just us or if other people, other women were in other organizations were having the same experience. And it just so happens a lot of people have studied this issue in different domains and in different ways. But what we found when we looked to other people's research is that, you know, there were evidence in a whole host of professions There was, and also across industries. So we found evidence that women among attorneys were doing more non promotable work than their male colleagues. There was evidence from engineers, from high tech workers, a lot of, you know, kind of white collar workers, what we might call. But also we found some really interesting studies that this was happening among in professions like grocery store clerks or TSA agents. 
that also the women were being overburdened or pigeonholed into work that was not advancing their career, where the men had much many more opportunities to do things that helped them advance. So we started saying, okay, so this is happening. You know, at least people report that they're doing more of this than the other. But we wanted to know how big is the difference? Is this real or is this just what people perceive? So we actually did a study with consultants, people in professional services firm. And the nice thing about looking at them is right, these firms track billable and non-billable hours, right? So they already have a baseline of, you know, billable hours are more promotable because these firms track and promote based on what your billables are. But they also kept track of all the other work that people did in terms of helping with recruiting or mentor programs or offsites or whatever. So they were able to start tracking what was promotable and not. And what they found was that the female consultants were spending about 200 extra hours per year than their male counterparts doing non-promotable work. That's a month of extra work that doesn't advance careers, right? And imagine when you're spending your time doing that extra work, it's less time you have available to do the work that does advance your career, or you're just going to work overtime to fit it all in. And we found evidence of both in our research. We found that the junior women who were doing all this extra work compared to their male counterparts were actually doing less promotable work. They were making this trade-off, whereas the female senior consultants were just working an extra month of time. That is so interesting. Yeah, right. So we really did find some hardcore evidence of that. And I wonder, you know, not it, not only when might that translate into promotion, but in some industries that might translate into bonus money. Like that's like actual, you know, in, in the medical space, that would be like RVUs that aren't getting happening. And if your paycheck depends on your RVUs, which not everybody's does, but some people do, then that's actually like going to contribute to the pay gap, even though they're doing things that may be less pleasant than the RVU generating work that they're actually paid to do or the deep work that they're paid to do as researchers, and they're getting punished for it. Absolutely. And when we talk about promotability, really want to think broadly. You know, I want to hit that home. You hit it the nail on the head. It's not just about getting a promotion, but it's all the things that, you know, advance you and your work life, which includes pay and recognition, as well as advancement, which, you know, often goes hand in hand. Hmm. Well, then, is there research that looks at the why? Is it that they are asked more? Or is it they say yes, more readily, or both? Interestingly, the answer is both. It's both. This was our question about, you know, once you figure out it's happening, then got to figure out why is it happening? What's driving it? Because if you don't know what's driving it, then you can't fix the problem or you're not, you're just like, you know, throwing darts at a board and you're not knowing if you're going to hit it, hit the target. So we did this experiment where we set it up so that women had the opportunity versus men to be asked to do a non-promotable task, to say yes or no, and even to volunteer. And what we found across all these studies was that the women were 44% more likely to be asked to do a non-promotable task than a man, a similar man. So they were more likely to be asked. And it it was a pretty good strategy because the women who were asked were about 50% more likely to say yes. And at the same time, we found that these norms or expectations potentially were internalized that 
women were also more likely to volunteer to do a non-promotable task in the first place. And we ran some really interesting set of studies that isolated the underlying reason for all of these things, which comes down to shared expectations. It was, it's not that women are better at doing non-promotable tasks or we like doing them more or we're just more helpful or altruistic. Well, we may be that, but that wasn't the reason women are volunteering to do these tasks. It's because everybody expects the women to do it. We don't expect the men to do it in terms of our uh, norms and stereotypes that we do think about women as helpers. And we know this, the women know this, we internalize it. And so we are more likely to say yes, we're more likely to volunteer and people are more likely to ask us. So all these things are coming into play. That's so interesting. And it, it is this kind of like a cycle, right? Because the more women say yes, the more that reinforces that they're the ones to ask. And then it just kind of keeps feeding off of itself. That's right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And then I want to talk a little bit about like, is there a way to break this cycle without looking terrible? Because I, I think this is fascinating, but also kind of disheartening at the same time. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we are back and we were talking about the kind of endless cycle of saying yes, being expected to say yes. If you have read The Note Club and you are determined to maybe become a cycle breaker in this way, you are going to be faced with the fact that, at least in my experience, I always feel like there's more pressure as a female to say yes or that you maybe, maybe to put it a different way, you get punished more harshly for saying no in a social way. So I would love your advice for ways to say no without either getting pushback or developing a reputation as someone who is difficult, hard to work with, not a team player, et cetera. You know, it's really interesting. You said you feel the pressure to say yes, and that you wondered if it was just you. Because these are driven by expectations, it's not just you. It's that there are these expectations. And of course, when anyone violates an expectation, there's a risk of backlash. There's a risk of being punished. And this happens. So when women say no to these types of requests, there can be negative repercussions. You know, you're not a team player. You're not, you know, fulfilling the role you're supposed to. But when men say no, they don't get punished. In fact, they get a boost when they say yes, because, oh, they're so helpful. Women don't get that boost because we just expect them to do it. So that experience you have is very real, and it's been borne out in, in um, studies that we've done and other people have done as well. So what do you do about this? Knowing that there are these expectations out there, we can't just say no, because there is this violation. So it's really, how do you say no in a way to avoid the negative repercussions that you're talking about? So we do lay out a whole host of recommendations in the book. A few I wanted to focus on now would be first, keeping your explanation brief. You know, our kind of feeling is that I really have to explain myself and why I'm saying no. And while the requester may expect to hear an explanation, you don't have to go into a lot of detail. You know, that you have a full plate with your promotable work, with a deadline that's coming up, whatever it may be, could be sufficient. Second is to find ways to solve their problem. When someone comes with you with a request, they're hoping that you will solve their problem. But if you don't have the bandwidth to do that, you're already overloaded with other non-promotable tasks. 
is there a way for you to either suggest someone else who could benefit from doing the task, maybe who's never done it before, or a different way they could divide up the work among other people so that they're getting what they need without you taking on the burden? So that's the second. And then the third is finding ways to negotiate your no. And sometimes it involves a bit of a yes. So one is to say, well, if I'm going to take this on, then I need to clear my plate to make room for it. So you need, as the requester, if you're especially if you're my boss, to think about what to roll out of in order to make room for this task. How do you want me to be spending your time? Because I'm sure you don't want me to cut back on my promotable work because that's really important to the organization. That's the most instrumental to the bottom line. That's a big part of promotable work. But if you want this other work done, then what other non-promotable tasks can someone else take on to make room? Also setting limits on the task. So if you want me to do it today, who's going to do it next time? So I'll take it on, but let's get, you know, Joe or James on board as well so that they're trained up to do it next time. So we think about ways to turn the request for help into a negotiation. I like that. I feel like I could have used that, the part about trading your time or like, what else will I not do a little bit more than I did? Because, you know, I didn't go into my whole story here, but I I think part of what drove me into deciding to go part-time is frustration with so many of these things. And that the ultimate permission to say no was to say, sorry, I only work here 60%. My paycheck is 60%. So you're going to have to ask someone who is, you know, here all the time. But I don't think that is a great answer for most people. I happen to have, you know, other things I really wanted to do with the 40%. Anyway, that's super interesting. I just going back, I'm, I'm hearing like, oh, what could I have done better there? All right. Well, give us an example of what is a yes activity? Like if we're saying no to some of these things, what are things that, you know, a frame, is there a framework or a way that you have of deciding if someone asks you something, whether it's something that is worth your time, that is worth maybe moving your core job responsibilities away from, to really decide what to say yes to? I mean, you, what a really important point is you need to say yes to some things and you should say yes to some non-promotable tasks. The answer here is not to say no to everything. It's to choose the NPTs that are right for you. End up with tasks that are fulfilling. And so this was actually the insight that I had in terms of why I was much less stressed out than the rest of my no club in terms of the non-promotable tasks I was doing. So they were running around doing things that weren't necessarily fulfilling to them, but I was maybe subconsciously choosing the tasks that were right for me, that were either aligned with my personal mission or helped me grow as a leader. So I was doing this in a way that resulted in a, think about like a portfolio or a mix of non-promotable tasks that were energizing for me as opposed to depleting. So that was, you know, one piece of the puzzle in terms of choosing NPTs that are right for you, in terms of choosing the ones that are most fulfilling. A second characteristic is to choose MPTs that really leverage your expertise, right? So look, I'm a professor. I was hired for my research skills and my teaching skills, not my skills of how to design a new building. Now, I might have some insight into what classrooms should be structured, but I didn't need to spend, you know, months and months on the design of three different buildings over my 30-year career. So, you know, choosing MPTs that leverage your, your expertise is also um, 
more beneficial to your organization and more beneficial to you and even potentially indirectly promotable in that at least you're developing that, those key skill sets. And then thinking about choosing NPTs that are right for you at that time. So sometimes NPTs are actually opportunities and they, they may present themselves as, you know, it feels really good to be asked. You know, you respect me a lot. I'll get some visibility from this. And doing that once may be good, but doing it many times might, you know, there's diminishing returns over time. So it's not really a great use of your time the second, third, or fourth time you did it. Like that building committee, maybe the first time was good. I met a bunch of people, the third or fourth, less so for my career. But then also, you know, some of these opportunities are very time consuming. And if I can't do them today, maybe I'll be asked again in a few years from now, when I have more time, or I've completed this important task I'm working on now. So, you know, you think about this in the long term and not just the short term. That makes sense. And, you know, saying no relates to, you know, we have two triggers typically, either fear or guilt, right? We're either afraid to say no because of this backlash issue we talked about, or we feel guilty saying no because we, there's this implicit expectation that we're going to help a friend or a colleague. And so recognizing those triggers that you might have or the motivations you have for saying yes can help you make better decisions about what to do and when to say yes and when to say no. I definitely recognize those triggers sometimes, but and then at the same time, if you're truly afraid of what the backlash would be by like disappointing someone that is senior to you, it almost makes it worse because you're like, okay, I could say no to this and I want to say no to this, but then this person will be disappointed and will never come to me again. Like, I guess in practical terms, if you have just sort of come to the realization that you've become such a yes person and you want to start optimizing what your portfolio looks like and only have the yeses on your plate that make sense with that framework, where would you start? Would you like start small, like one little no? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just curious because yeah. for myself, yeah, this, this is still challenging. Even, I'm, even today, even now, I, even with my built-in excuse, I'm still putting myself in the position and I'm still having a hard time figuring out certain types of requests, how I would be able to turn them down. Yeah. So having a framework of thinking about what types of tasks you want to say yes to and the types of tasks you want to say no to give you an initial filter of how to respond. But your best first step is to never say yes immediately. When someone asks you to do a non-promotable task or something you think is non-promotable, tell them you'll get back to them and then do your homework. How much time is this going to take? What's expected of me? Why do I feel the need to say yes? Is it realistic? Is this someone I need to say yes to? Sometimes it is, right? But other times it's someone that you can, you know, have a conversation with about the shared problem that I don't have the bandwidth to pick this up right now. So let's find a way to help you and also, you know, say yes and recognize, you know, the limits that I have. So it's um, doing the assessment of, you know, how do you currently spend your time and understanding what's your work-work balance right now? How much promotable versus non-promotable work are you doing currently? How do others spend their time? And what are the organization's expectations? And you kind of put this all together to come up with a goal of the amount of time you're, you can spend. And then you can use that to make your adjustments and also to respond to other people in terms of, am I in that band of work that is right for the organization and right for me? 
and then turn to your manager proactively instead of reactively. So instead of waiting for a request to come into you, go to your manager and say, hey, look, you may not be aware of all these other things I'm doing, but they're all on my plate. And I could really use your help sorting through this to determine what my priority should be, how I should be spending my time, how you'd like me to be spending my time, because I guarantee they'll come back with them wanting to do your promotable work, because again, that helps the, them more than anything. And then recognize that there are other people who could potentially take on this extra work that you're already doing. No, that makes sense. I like that. Turning to my manager is something that I always like doing because thankfully I work with really good people. And the delayed response is definitely softer and less terrifying than a immediate no. So, okay, in every episode that we do for Best of Both Worlds, and by the way, this this I think is going to be so valuable. I would not be surprised if we get some specific questions for you after it airs. So I will email you if they come through uh, Laura's blog, which is usually where the kind of detailed show notes come. And then maybe if you have some expertise to offer, we would love that. But every week we do a love of the week where people share something that is making them happy in a given week. And so do you have one for us? Yeah. So I'm reading this book right now that it's making me happy, but it's also challenging me in a way that, you know, makes me a little uncomfortable, but also really cool. The book's called Shared Sisterhood. It's written by uh, Tina Opie and Beth Livingston. Uh, It was put out by the Harvard Business Press. But it's uh, really about how white women and women of color can come together to support both racial and gender equity. And so, you know, as a white woman, especially writing this book, you know, all of us were, we really came from this, you know, this position of privilege and of just as as a function of our socioeconomic status and our jobs and our race that, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily extend to our, our sisters. And I find this book as a really great and enjoyable and eye-opening read. So it's something I recommend. Awesome. I will link that in the show notes. Shared sisterhood. Perfect. Well, I guess I'll just do a book as well. So I used The Handmaid's Tale, the series, as a love of the week, but now I'm going to add the book because I'm greatly enjoying the Margaret Atwood version. It feels incredibly current. They are very similar, but I don't really mind that because I kind of enjoy being immersed in that world anyway. So it's just fun to like see a different type of depiction. So That would be my novel, Love of the Week. Since you had a book, I felt like I had to have a book too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is wonderful. Where can everybody find you? And of course, I will link to exactly the title and all the authors of the book because you are one of a couple co-authors, correct? There's four of us, actually, who wrote the book together. Uh, We are the I Just Can't Say No Club. Now we call ourselves the No Club because we've gotten so much better. You can find us at thenoclub.com. So we have a website where, uh, with some information about the book, places we've given talks, press coverage, some excerpts. We also have there a um, information for book clubs, you know, questions for book clubs if they want to discuss the book in their book club, or ways to start your own no club, which we also encourage. So I think there's some resources there that everybody can gain from. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. All of this definitely made me think a lot, and I think it will be really useful to many of our listeners as well. And thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. All right. Well, that was so much fun chatting with Lori Weingart. Definitely will include all the information about the link to her book and her 
her book that she did with some others in the show notes. And we have a fun question for you. Apparently I'm reading it. Okay, here we go. I have been thinking a lot about getting more help around the home. Right now we have cleaners come about once a week, but I've been thinking it would be nice to have more help. Someone who was around for longer who could do laundry, change beds, get groceries, and all the other chores that the once a week cleaners don't do. However, my husband works from home and we're unsure about how he would feel having someone else in the house during the day. He tends to eat at irregular times, fitting it around meetings, and it just seems like he would feel like he was getting in their way or vice versa. Do you have any advice on getting over this hesitation? Yeah. I mean, I I totally understand because when you work from home, one of the upsides sometimes is that you're in the house by yourself, right? And especially if you are an adult with many children, there may not be that many moments when you are in the house by yourself. And I'm not saying that you, you know, go around like dancing and singing or anything like that, but it's nice to have that feeling of of privacy as you are going about your day. And if you have someone else in the house, then you don't necessarily have that. So I think there's a couple of things um, you can do if you decide that this is something that you're interested in. Is One is be very clear with your husband about which hours he would most like protected and which he does not. And it might mean that you need to be a little bit more set in the hours that your help would come. But if, for instance, he really likes to have the house to himself in the mornings, then maybe you have this person come from two to five, three days a week or something, that those are the days that maybe he will get adjusted to the idea of having someone else in the house then. I would say if you hire someone also who's done this sort of thing before, maybe if you look into their past experience, if they have you know worked in a house where maybe there's a stay-at-home parent or maybe there's somebody who works from home or whatever, that they know how to kind of stay out of people's way, um, that's also kind of a helpful thing that uh, you, you can kind of get used to each other as well, or he'll get used to like when she's running errands, like these are the times she'll actually be here or he will be here. But you know, there are some times that they definitely will not be there. And then you kind of learn how to be in the space, but not be on top of each other for the hours that the person is there. I know that our neighbors tend to have their cleaning person just not clean the office when my friend is working from home. And they do the rest of the house and then therefore they're really not in the way of each other. So I would also just say maybe to try it, like arrange the hours as best you can, because until you've actually seen what it's like, you know, it kind of depends. Like Josh and I are very different in this regard. If I'm recording a podcast, obviously I can't have somebody making a bunch of background noise, but if I'm not recording specifically, I'm a very good concentrator and there could be like a literal tornado going on. And I, I honestly wouldn't notice unless it was my own kids screaming for me. So, you know, my threshold is pretty low, but I might not know that until I actually tried it. Like, I don't mind somebody cleaning if I'm working. My husband would absolutely mind that. But, you know, again, if he hasn't tried it and depending on how your house is set up, he might actually be able to kind of hide from them with more ease than he thinks. So I would also just say, dive in before assuming it's going to be a problem. And he might develop his own strategies too. I mean, I know that if it seems like the house is busy with lots of, you know, we've had various renovations going on and that is harder to concentrate with, but like, I'll go work somewhere else. Like I've worked in the library. Now that doesn't work if you have a lot of conference calls, but you know, maybe there's, he can do 
walks while on a conference call or something. Um, if he does have quiet work that he could go work in a library or coffee shop or something like that, I don't know the sort of work he does, but it's entirely possible that he might be able to do that sort of thing. He can also get, yeah, lock himself in his office and they don't come in there. I mean, that, that is entirely the easiest way to stay out of each other's hair. And it's not that different from, you know, if you're at an office and you would like shut yourself in your office or cubicle and like not deal with whatever people are coming in and out and around. And and it's certainly possible to do that. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. Sarah was interviewing Lori Weingart, who is one of the co-authors of The No Club, great book about saying no to non-promotable tasks. Uh, We will be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.